so I was doing some uh, just research, and I love to just get down the rabbit holes of the internet and decide some things. And, and uh, there's a very common phenomenon, and it is this. Most people know how to ride a bike. Most people cannot draw from memory what a bike looks like. Have you ever tried it? You can cheat right now during the talk. Try, try to draw a bike. Uh, here's a video of some really artsy people realizing the very same thing. Check out this video. These people are trying to figure out how to draw bikes. Today we're going to test the artistic skills of everyone here at Rocket Jump, which is ostensibly a creative company, by asking them to draw from memory a bicycle. No, I can't do that. <laughs> what, is this a trick? No, just draw a bicycle. A bicycle? Yep. I've never owned a bicycle. There's a seat. Hey, yeah, yeah, no peeking. Oh, mm, so, is it supposed to be like that? It's a complicated machine. <laughs> you think it's simple, but it's not. The seat pad? <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing with the pedals? You actually don't know what a bicycle looks like. Spokes are the most important part of any wheel. I thought roundness would be... Maybe. Put some I'm gonna put some on. spokes here. Oh, there's, there's usually like a, like a thing involved. Man, I have no idea what I'm doing. The spokes is the ultimate delaying measure. <laughs> this is an interesting interpretation of a bicycle. Because you have to have something that turns it. So, okay, so this is like one thing. That turns. How does this work? Where did the, how did the pedals work? This is a chain that makes the back wheel go, and then this is a pedal that makes that chain go. Look, I got the gear, I got the, the gear thing, I got the frame, I got two wheels and a steering wheel. <laughs> it's everything you need for a real bicycle. How do you make this thing move? <laughs> you know what? You're right. <laughs> <laughs> this is that's what you think a bicycle action. looks like? No, that's what a bad drawer thinks a bicycle looks like. Have you ever well, ridden a bicycle in your life? Not a long time. I'm very short. Hard to reach the ground. <laughs> what right. has allowed you to render this so accurately from memory? Uh, I put them together. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> you work at a bike shop? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I don't know if you can draw a bicycle, but it just goes to show us one simple thing is that there's a lot of things that we don't know how they work. And if you were to sit down and try to draw out a diagram of how a lot of things we use every day work, I think you'd be surprised at how much we often just kind of go on, Meh, I'm just going to trust that somebody else knows how to do this. I bring up all these things about bicycles because here's the reality. It doesn't matter if you know how to draw a bicycle. Who cares? But there are a lot of things in life, deeper things, that when we are forced to think about it, we go, I don't know. I don't know. And so there's kind of a thing that I think you have to become okay with. And it's this idea. It is important to know what you do not know. It is really important to know what you do not know because then it sets your, your, your limits. Not that you need to be limited, not that you have to like hold back in life, but it also helps us make better decisions and it helps us be safer in the decisions that we make. So, so how does this relate to the more important things in life? Um, last week, we started a new teaching series called With God, and it's based uh, from this book by a guy named Sky Jathani. Uh, it's called With God. With reimagining the way you relate to God. I, I highly recommended this book last week. I totally recommend you hop on Amazon and find this book. It's been very uh, formative for me for about uh, four or five months now to just kind of get in this concept. Last week, we kind of did an introduction on the concept. And the concept is this that there are lots of different postures that we tend to take with God. Uh, and so last week, the postures that we, that we, uh, 
discuss were that sometimes we talk about a life over God or a life under God or a life for God or a life from God. And we talked about all those. I won't rehash all of them. I totally recommend you go check out our podcast and listen. It's up there now. Um, but in this, I, this, this idea is that there's a fifth posture. That in all of these other things, in life under God, over God, for God, and from God, we discover things that are maybe designed by God or created by God in the life for God. We're living life, and the center of our life is living God's mission, right? That's, that's for God. Or life from God. Is it, the whole thing about life is living for God's blessings. Or life over God is saying, you know, I'm trying to under understand God's principles. And if I can understand natural law or, or, or principles, then, then that's all I need. Because if I can understand how the world works, then I can live life over God. I don't need it. Or life under God is like, you know, underneath the surface is God's design, divine will. And if I, can just, if I can just appease God by being good enough, then that'll... But in all of those things, though, a lot of those are good. All of those are good things. God's principles are good. God's divine will is good. God's mission is good. God's blessings are good. What we run the risk of is replacing... God with these things he has, his mission, his blessings, these other things. The fifth posture that Jathani suggests is that we start to live a life with God. It's not trying to get some byproduct of God out of him. Instead, it's saying, I want his presence as my primary goal. I want to know him in my life. I want to live that out in my life. And in the next three weeks, what we want to do is unpack three really practical ways to seek that life with God. Now, I'll go ahead and let the cat out of the bag for today. Today's word, the way that we live with God, is that we live with God through faith. It's a simple concept. Uh, it's a thing you might hear in church a lot. You have some kind of neat little definition for it, and you can talk about it with all kinds of word pictures. But the reality is if we want to live a life where our posture is not to get something from God or to decode something about God, but instead we just say, I want to be in God's presence, the first step is maybe discovering what it means to have faith. See, there are a lot of things in this world that we don't know. And it's important to know what you do not know. Because when you begin to unpack what you do not know, you have to discover someone who does. And that's where we're going this morning. Today, as we talk about faith, uh, you know, I think it starts with us understanding how we view the world. And, and this is interesting because I, I really pushed against this idea. I didn't want this to be true, but the more that I unpack it, the more I think it is. I, I think that the reality is that most of us believe that we live in a fundamentally dangerous world. The world's a scary place. And you might be like a super optimist. I am. You're like, no, it's not that bad. I mean, life is, but like, think about all the effort we go to to avoid the dangers of this world. If you're a parent, how, how many things do you feel like you're protecting your kids from all the time? I'm protecting my kids from, from TV. I'm protecting them from movies. I'm protecting them from their friends. I'm protecting them from myself a lot of times. I'm protecting them from exposure to whatever. Think about that. We're constantly protecting spouses, married people. How many things do you believe are potentially a threat to the happiness of your marriage? Think about it. Think about the number of things that could tear your marriage apart, finances or another person or interrelational things, a lot of things. And it's, it's like, man, it's kind of dangerous out there for our marriage. So what do we do? We, we take extra steps and we try to protect ourselves. Uh, if you voted in any recent election, I'm going to tell you there's a good chance that one of the factors that caused you to vote for whoever it was you voted for was because you were scared of what might happen if the other person won. There's a fear factor. It's a dangerous world, so we gotta get the right people in the right place, right? It's a dangerous world. We fundamentally, we believe we're living in a fundamentally dangerous world. How many, this is, this is one of the things that hit me the hardest. How many insurance policies do we really need? 
But man, we insure everything. Why? It's a dangerous world, man. You gotta be protected. You got house insurance. Maybe it's homeowner's insurance. Maybe it's rental insurance. You got car insurance. You got life insurance in case you die. You got health insurance in case you get sick. And then like Aflac, the duck will sell you like extra insurance on top of your insurance just in case your insurance wasn't enough insurance, right? We need insurance. Why? Because fundamentally we are scared that something bad might happen. Now, is that a really positive way to start a talk on faith? No, no, I don't wanna say that. But if we step back and look at the world, watch the news, listen to the posture of the way news is portrayed. It's terrifying. The world is scary. Think about how much your worldview is shaped by the fears that you have. In Jathani's book, he actually, uh, he, he says that he believes that's where all world religion came from, or, or, or the origin of religion is us trying to manage our fear. We're trying to find some kind of way of controlling that fear. And we talked about that some last week. There's so much that we don't know. And the things that we don't know, that makes us nervous, don't they? So where do we move from there? This whole idea that the world is fundamentally a dangerous place, this is what made Jesus' teaching so earth-shaking. Because you know what Jesus basically said? He said, stop worrying about all that. And so Jesus preaches these things, and you hear him, you're like, well, that's a good idea. But then we step back, and we're like, I, I, I'm not sure. That, that grinds against the grain, against everything I believe about the world. What I want to do is we're going we're to get into a lot of Bible today, and I'm actually going to skim through three chapters of the book of Matthew. So if you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and grab it. It's cool if you want to skim through it on your phone, uh, on, on a Bible app or on the Internet. Uh, we'll have some of the Scripture here on the screen, but it's so much, I'm actually not going to read it all. I'm actually just going to kind of summarize some things. And if you've got a paper Bible, it would be really good because you could kind of take some notes. By the way, we give away free Bibles every week, so there's some on this table. Feel free to go grab one at any time. Uh, and it's yours to keep. We want everybody to have a good readable Bible. But as we look uh, at the teachings of Jesus, one of the things we see is what it means to take a step away from the fear of this dangerous world and towards a life of faith. That's kind of our journey I want to go on today. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are this collection of Jesus' teachings, often called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're not positive if he gave all the teachings all at one time, like he stood there and he just preached it all, or if this is just a collection of several teachings. Either way, as you read through it, you get a core teaching of what, this is what Jesus taught. Like when Jesus traveled from place to place and he taught how people should live, this is the stuff he taught. And the stuff he said, let me be honest, based on the world's perspective, is crazy, the stuff Jesus said that we should do and believe and live by, it is crazy compared to the worldview of this world we live in. Let's start in, in Matthew chapter 5. So starting in verse 1, the first 10 verses, is something we call the Beatitudes. And Jesus goes through these Beatitudes and he basically is like, this is some ways that you should live. And so we're just going to kind of scroll through those as I talk through some of them. But check this out. Jesus said stuff like this. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Do you feel very blessed when you feel poor in spirit? Like, I'm, I'm depressed, I'm sad. But Jesus said, blessed are the, those who are poor in spirit. He said, blessed are those who mourn. If you've ever experienced loss, you're like, I don't feel very blessed while I'm mourning. This is what Jesus says here. He said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says things like, blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemaker. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name. If I were going to sit down and list all the things that I feel blessed of, I don't think any of those would have made the list. I'd be like, blessed when the Cowboys win the Super Bowl, blessed when, you know, we get an unexpected check in the mail for your birthday, blessed when my Jeep finally starts on its own and I don't have to buy another part to fix it. Like, that's the things that what I would feel blessed, but the things Jesus lists are things that are, 
the, the gut punches of this world. He said, you know, blessed are you in those moments. And he goes on to explain, because when you're in those moments, you have to turn to God. You have to have faith in him. And he explains it more and more. And Jesus says, if you want to live for me, these are things that you're going to have to understand are valuable. So that's just chapter five. And you could read through Matthew chapter five and see some more of that. In Matthew um, chapter five, he goes on and he teaches uh, this. He says, you are salt and you are light in this world. So the world is a dark place, but your job is to go out and make it a better place. That's terrifying, isn't it? But that's what Jesus says we should do. He, he lists a bunch of tough topics after that. He talks about murder. He talks about divorce. He talks about vengeance. He says things like, if you're gonna follow me, you can't hate people and you gotta learn to forgive people. Anybody struggle with forgiveness? But Jesus says this is what you're supposed to do. He says this. He says probably one of the craziest things he says is this. You should love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What, Jesus? This is grinding against the grain of what I think is valuable to me in my life. Chapter six, we move on. He talks about our money. He talks a lot about our, our wealth and what we value. And you know what he says? He says that the biggest value you can have in all of your wealth is to be generous. Give it away. What? I worked hard for that. What do you mean give it away? I should be generous. He talks about our prayer. He talks about fasting and some spiritual disciplines. When you get uh, to the end of chapter six, he says this, and I think it tackles one of our biggest monsters of our world. Uh, He calls it worry. In 2019, we call it anxiety. And it's probably one of the number one things that hampers us in our life today is, is anxiety. What does anxiety come from, by the way? A fear of something that you can't control. You know what Jesus says about worry? Don't. You know why? He said, because you know what? Tomorrow's got enough worries of its own. You just focus on today. And he says, I got tomorrow. And he gives us these examples. You know birds? You think birds worry? You think birds are like, oh, shoot, winter's coming. No, I take care of the birds. You know the flowers of the field? You think the flowers of the field are worried? No, they don't worry. You know why? Because I take care of them. And, and I love you more than I love the animals. Don't you know I'm going to take care of you, but what's like the number one thing dragging us down? Worry. And Jesus says that. We're like, ah, I'm not jiving with that, Jesus. Chapter 7. We did chapter 5. We did chapter 6. We did chapter 7. Remember, this is Jesus' biggest collection of all his teachings. And we come here and say, you know, church is about being a Christian, okay? So this is the fundamental core beliefs of what it is to be a Christian, a lot of them. In chapter 7, he says, talks a lot about not judging people for their faults. Uh, That's like one of the main things we do. (laughs) The main thing we do is we look at someone and within 10 seconds we formulate an opinion about them and we know everything about them, right? So in just those three chapters, there's like 20 quotable phrases Jesus gives. And they're great things, things that you could like crochet and cross stitch, I mean, and put on your like bathroom wall and, and memorize. They'd be great, great things. Here's the question I have for us today. Do you think that Jesus actually meant that stuff? Do you think it's actually possible to live a life that Jesus calls people to live? That is a good question. Do you think he actually meant that stuff? Uh, We could turn into little discussion circles right now and discuss that. Uh, In in this book with Basket Jathani, he he actually did that. He had a, a big classroom full of people and he did basically set up the same thing I just did and went through the teachings of Jesus. And he asked the question, do you think that Jesus actually meant this stuff? And these are people who are seasoned Christians who have been going to church for a long, long time. And you know what they said? Well, one of the first things someone said, well, well, no one's perfect, so... And then the answer started coming, and more and more, they kind of decided, you know, no, no one can really love their enemy. I mean, can you really do that? And no one can actually be that generous. 
And maybe, maybe Jesus was just exaggerating to make a point. He said eventually the whole class agreed that it was unrealistic, possibly impossible, to live the life that Jesus said we should live. Why? Because we believe that the world is fundamentally a dangerous place. And you know what's dangerous? Living with that kind of mindset. Because, man, you're, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. You're setting yourself up to make people mad at you. You're setting yourself up to look like a weirdo freak. And it's, a day, it's risky to live the Jesus life. Of everyone in this room who would call yourself a Christian, I'm not going to throw any of us under the bus or the people from the book under the bus because as I personally dig through this, I'm like, mm, I resonate with the opinions of that class. You know, how many of us feel blessed when we're mourning? Do you feel like you can't be a peacemaker uh, or that you could hunger or thirst for righteousness? After all, in the world won by whoever wins the wars, right? How do we keep peace all the time? It doesn't work. Maybe you don't have any interest in forgiving certain people. Maybe being generous, you're like, man, I'm struggling to make ends meet myself. How am I supposed to be generous? It's easy to feel like the Jesus way is impossible or unrealistic. And, and maybe that's why we avoid that with God posture. Because, man, if I get too close to where God wants me, man, it's going to make me change a lot. And I don't really want to change a lot. I, like, I want to change a little bit. Really, I just want things to improve. So what do we do? How do we be that generous? How do we love our enemy? How do we live the ways that Jesus says we can live? I think, first of all, this first answer is, by my own power, I can't. And that's why when we discuss it, we could have convinced ourselves that Jesus didn't really want us to live that way. Because by my own power, I, I, I can't. I'm gonna mess things up, I'm imperfect. But I think there might be something that Jesus taught us that can teach us that it is, it is attainable. And it is possible. And it actually starts with understanding some things that the Bible says about animals. Uh, the Bible talks a lot about lots of different types of animals. Um, and so I, I've had a lot of pets in my life, a handful. I've had a couple dogs, a couple cats, uh, a couple hamsters, a couple hermit crabs. I don't know if they count. The hermit crabs count as pets? Like, I don't know. Um, they, they felt, they, it felt real it, for me at the time. So, uh, you know, I, got, I had a lot of pets. Right, right now we don't have... Uh, any like traditional pets, but we have chickens. And so uh, I've said, I've told some stories about our chickens. We have five chickens right now. And I've learned a lot about chickens in the last couple of years. One thing I've learned about chickens is they are dumb. They are stupid animals. Now you might have genius chickens at your house. I do not. My chickens are not very smart. And like they do funny stuff. Like we'll let them out in the yard to, to eat bugs and stuff. And I'm glad that they do that. But then like they'll get stuck like in a corner and be like, I can't figure this out. I'm just... And they'll start freaking out, like, or, or they'll fight about the dumbest things. One of our chickens started molting. Uh, they're birds. They, their feathers come, come out sometimes, and a few weeks ago, the other chickens saw that her feathers were falling out, and there was little light spots where you could see her skin. So they were like, you know what? We've been cool for like a couple years, but now I think I'm going to attack you over and over and over and try to peck your brains out. And so there was like four chickens attacking our one chicken, and we walk out, we're here to squawk, and we're like, what is going on? And so we had to actually like quarantine the one chicken until her feathers grew back, and check this out. Now they're cool. They're fine. They're good, like, sorry, bro, like, didn't mean to pick your brains out. I was just, chickens are not bright, okay, they're not bright animals. What I've learned about animals is that the smarter an animal is, the less supervision they need, okay? Anybody got cats? I am not a cat person, but I tell you what, they rule the world. Like, just ask them. 
They are, it, just watch Garfield, like look at the Garfield comics. Like the cats are in charge. I'm convinced you could take any cat, you could put them in any setting anywhere in the world, give them two weeks and they will rule that place. Like that's what a cat will do because cats, they, they don't need you. If you think they need you, you think, like they don't need you. They don't need to be scratched behind the ear. They will convince someone else to scratch them behind the ear. Like they're just like, this. how cats are. They're smart like that. Um, and there are other animals that need more supervision. Now here's the thing. When you look through the whole Bible and you look at all the different animals that are talked about in the Bible, there is one animal that rises above all the rest. And it is the animal that God compares humans to the most. And do you know what that animal is? Sheep. Do you know anything about sheep? If chickens are dumb, sheep's, sheep are completely brainless. Like they just, they will do the dumbest things. And so like, I wish God would compare me to something cool, like a, like a, like a saber-toothed tiger, like a bald eagle, maybe like, like a mythical uh, liger. You remember Napoleon Dynamite? And like, I just, like, I wish it was something sweet like that, but no, he's like, no, you're a sheep. You're a sheep. You've even got awkward pluralizations, sheep or sheep. Like it's just, that's what you are. Why? Be- when you look at sheep, uh, man, they, they really need supervision. Uh, there's a story that came out of uh, uh, the Middle East. I think it was Turkey. Yeah, Turkish shepherds. Uh, the BBC published this a few years ago. Let me read a little bit of the article. Turkish shepherds watched in horror as hundreds of their sheep followed each other over a cliff. Say Turkish newspaper reports. First one sheep went off the cliff edge only to be followed by the whole flock. According to the reports, more than 400 sheep died in the 15-meter fall, their bodies cushioning the fall of 1,100 other sheep. So there's like this pile of cotton balls at the bottom, and so many sheep walked off this cliff that there was eventually enough padding that the other sheep didn't die. That is not an intelligent animal. Like, you would think they'd be like, look, Jerry's gone. Oh, and there goes Tanya and Sam. I wonder where they're going. Let's go, you know? And that's just, when you look at Scripture, it brings a whole new Meaning to Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says this, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turning his own way. How much will we just follow something into destruction? Sheep need supervision. God knows this about us and he's not slamming us to say, you need supervision. And so I got you. And there's a story that Jesus tells in John chapter 10. John is one of the four books that tells about the life of Jesus. And in John chapter 10, Jesus gives us this teaching about his relationship with us. And the beautiful thing about it is he says, you know what? You're like sheep. This world that we're in is like a a sheep pen, but I am the good shepherd. I'm here to look out for you. I'm here to take care of you. Let's read Jesus' word. John 10, starting at verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. The world is fundamentally a dangerous place. There's a thief. He's come to kill and steal and destroy, but take heart because the good shepherd says, I have come to bring life. I've come to protect you. I've come to give you guidance. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd. He does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep. He runs away and the wolf attacks and the flock scatter. The man runs away because he's a hired hand. 
He cares nothing for the sheep. There are so many things in this world that we try to put our, our trust in, our faith in, something to grasp control of the craziness of the world. But you know what happens? Those things are like a hired hand, and they crumble, and they fall, and when real trouble hits, guess where that safety net is? Gone. Verse 14, Jesus says it again, but I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus says it right there in verse 10. He says there's a thief. He says the thief has come to kill and steal and destroy. It sounds like the fundamentally dangerous world that we talked about. But then he says, I have come so that you can have life and have it to the full. So by ourselves, can we live up to all the things that Jesus wants us to live up to? I don't think so. I've tried. Maybe you've tried. I've been, there's some people who are better than others, but guess what? The Bible teaches us that all of us have fallen short of God's glory. At some point, we, we miss the mark. But the good shepherd enters in. There's so much I could say about a shepherd. I'm gonna skip over some of that. But I mean, the things that a shepherd does, a true loving shepherd, especially in this culture that Jesus speaks to, their whole life's goal is to protect and guide and lead these sheep He's a teacher, he's a protector, he's the good shepherd. I started out by saying it's important to know what we don't know. But listen to this. It is important to know what we don't know because that can give us the confidence to trust someone who does know. When I hit the wall with working on my Jeep, I eventually talked to Wayne. First of all, if your name is Wayne, you've got like a 30% better chance of knowing how a Jeep works. And Wayne's my guy. And I call Wayne, and Wayne was helping me this week. Why? Wayne's been doing mechanic work for decades. He knows his stuff. And a couple of you guys have helped me a lot. Zach, a lot of guys. Just like, okay. When you know what you don't know, then you can find the trust to go to someone else who does. There's a couple of pictures we can look at to help us move on to this life with God postures, particularly when it comes to faith. Finding faith. And the first one is this. It's understanding this world that we live in. So I talked a minute ago by saying that we live in a life that is maybe fundamentally dangerous. And so this is the cycle that we end ourselves up in. You can go and put that cycle up there. We live, first of all, in a world that we believe is dangerous. And so whether you want to admit it or not, if you step back and you're really honest and you realize all the things we do to protect ourselves from all kinds of things, there's a world out there, and Jesus says it himself, the thief has come to kill and steal and destroy. And so what does that cause? It leads to fear. And so then what do we do? What, what we do is we try to take control. And for some of us, that's religion. And for some of us, it's a bigger bank account. And for some of us, it's maxing out the credit card. And for some of us, it's a significant other. And for others of us, it's various layers of therapy. And all those things can be good in various forms. I don't recommend maxing out a credit card. But there's a lot of things that can be good. But we grasp for control. But here's what the world teaches us over and over and over again. That the things we put our trust in, the things we put our faith in, if they are of this world, their foundation is sand. And they will eventually crumble. The relationships that you're trusting in right now, eventually either that person is going to make a mistake or let you down or they're not going to live forever. They don't last forever. The bank account that you're so much trusting in, you're this far away from the market turning and something changing. If you've ever had just a crash in your savings or anything, you know that that's true. And the list goes on of all the things that we look towards giving control to so that we can 
tackle this fear, but guess what happens? As soon as that control module breaks, guess where we find ourselves again? Danger, which leads to fear, which leads to us scraping up the wall, looking for something to take control. But here's the thing. Jesus offers an alternative. There's a place where Jesus talks about uh, that we can't put our trust in those things, and, and I kind of alluded to some of those things. Control is an illusion for us to have control of things. It's an illusion. You can have control temporarily. But at the end, we are not God. Jesus' alternative is this. He says we need to surrender our control. There's another cycle we can, we can pick up. And this is what it starts with. It starts with replacing our fear with faith. And as soon as we hit something that we don't know and we don't understand, we say, ah, it's okay that I don't know and I don't understand that. Because the good shepherd does. And he's not gonna leave me hanging. And when we can replace our fear with faith, this new cycle begins. And it starts again with faith. And the faith leads us to a place it might start with surrender. They can go both ways. But faith leads us to a place where we say, you know what? I don't have to have control anymore. I'm going to surrender control to God. That's what faith is. When, I, when I'm working on my truck and I call Zach or Wayne and I'm like, hey, I need to surrender my control over this problem to you because you know more about it. But when we go to God, we say, listen, I, I'm going to have to turn my fear into faith. I just got to trust that you're going you're gonna to take care of this. And then when we can find that surrender, this is what it leads to the opposite of danger, the antithesis of fear, safety. When God compares us to sheep, what he talks about is the environment in which a sheep can have everything it needs and it can thrive and it can prosper within that setting because he has created that space for us. Safety. And that's what life with God looks like. A life that begins with a life in faith. Faith, surrender, Safety, and in that safety, you know what that builds for us? More faith. Because, man, I see that God took care of this. Now maybe I can trust him with this. I surrender it. Oh, it worked. I see that I trusted God with these two things. Maybe I can trust God with this third thing. I surrender it. Safety, more faith. As someone who's been living in faith for years, and they will tell you, the more they trust the shepherd, the more they feel like life is gonna be just fine, and the closer they are to living the Jesus way. That's what life with God looks like. And unlike the other four postures, over, under, from, for, all of those things, they, they, they might lead us to some sort of experience with God, his mission, his blessings, those other things we talked about. But none of those things take away the fear. But when we find ourselves with God in the presence of the strong and mighty creator, the fear goes away. And suddenly we can take a new mindset I don't live in a fundamentally dangerous world. I live in a world controlled and ruled by the creator of the universe who's capable and able to do anything and everything. How does this work? Okay, so I just want to speak to an elephant in the room. The reality is of life that we put, I mean, a lot of us can attest to this. We put our faith in God and guess what? Bad things still happen. So wait, no, but I, but I gave over surrender. I gave over control. I have faith. I'm supposed to have faith. I'm supposed to have safety. The, how does that work? <laughs> well, when stuff falls apart and we experience fear again, um, I think it goes back to the very basic, basic, basic thing about what it means to find faith. One time Jesus was asked, there's two, two kind of parts to this, okay? This is the first part. One time Jesus was asked, teacher, what is the greatest commandment? 
over everything else, what is the greatest commandment in the law? This is Matthew 22, starting in verse 36. In verse 37, Jesus says, 